ಆತ್ರಜಮರೋಪುರಿಷ್ಟಾವತಿ ರಾಧಾಕುಂಡಂ ಗಿರಿಬರಮ್ಮಹೋ ರಾಧಿಕಮಧಾವಶಂ ಪ್ರಪ್ತೋಯಶ್ಯಾಪ್ರತೀತ್ರೀಪಾಯುರು ತಂ ನಶ್ಮೀಕಲ್ಪತರೂಭ್ಯಶ್ಚಾಕೃಪಾಸಿಂಧುಭ್ಯತೀತಾ ಪವಾನೇಭ್ಯೋ ವೈಷ್ಣವೇಭ್ಯೋ ನಮೋ ನಮಃ ನಿಖಿಲಾಶ್ರುತಿಮಲೇರತ್ನಮಾಲಿತಿಜಿತಾಪದಪಂಕಜಂತಜೀಮುಕ್ತಕುಲೈರುಪಶ್ಯಾ
गौर भक्त वृंद की जय गौर प्रेमानी वो वेलकम टू ऑम टू ऑल प्रणाम गुड आफ्टरनून एंड थैंक यू सो मच फॉर योर इन्विटेशन टू टू ऑनर हरिकता टू ट्राई टू से समथिंग अबाउट द एब्सोलूट अबाउट द इन्फिनेट अबाउट अस वी से इन इट्सेल्फ अ चैलेंजिंग एंटरप्राइज ट्राई टू से समथिंग अबाउट द इन्फिनेट दैट्स वाई Harikatha sometimes is known also in Sanskrit as Ananta Kata. So Ananta means unlimited. That's one name of God in our tradition. Unlimited. He who has no Anta. Ananta means he who has no end. The endless one. So Ananta Kata means trying to say something about he who is unlimited. So good luck. <laughs> That's a very interesting adventure. I'm trying to touch some point. of an infinite line of things that we can say about hmm, the absolute so the particular point i'll try to touch today so to say uh, and the topic that has been suggested by hridaya chaitanya uh, we will be talking today about impersonalism and personalism or more specifically in the context of a book i recently wrote called radical personalism so we'll be talking about going from impersonalism to radical personalism and all all the lies in between that <laughs> and i know that some of you may be more uh, introduced to our philosophy some others maybe uh, more recently introduced at the end of the day we are all students forever because again this is an endless topic so we can never finish grasping the whole thing but i beg your in advance i beg your patience and your uh, forgiveness because maybe some things i may say you may feel they are going a little bit above your head uh, for some but hopefully some other things reach the correct place so as i always like to say even if you ended the lecture and just you you understood one single thing of this whole hour the whole meeting was justified no problem you try to get that one single thing and <laughs> and churn it and, and make it deeper and deeper it's 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 a recipe for frustration to come to a meeting like this expecting to understand everything basically <laughs> not only to a meeting like this to any situation in life you know, if you try to understand everything again good luck <laughs> especially when we are again trying to say something about the the infinite we have to keep some as i like to say epistemological modesty some humility in our attempt to approach such a reality so i'm saying that in advance some disclaimer before starting that don't 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 expect to to get any to get everything and what you think you understood don't be so sure about it either <laughs> maybe you understood it on some level but remain aware of whatever i have understood it can also be understood still on so many other levels so we should always remain open to to further not only knowing in terms of intellectual capacity but further unpacking and disclosure and revelation in our hearts with by the grace of the sweet absolute 
So that's today's topic from impersonalism to radical personalism and all that lies in between, so to say. So again, a book I published recently has the title of Radical Personalism. And here comes another disclaimer <laughs> because it's so delicate. You use words and sometimes for me, one word means something and for other person means something very different. And we talked the other day with Kridai about that. And if I don't clarify certain things, you may get stuck with one word that I say in, in the second minute of my lecture till one hour and a half after. So just in case I'm saying radical personalism, the word radical is not a bad word because sometimes we tend to associate radical with something like, like too anarchic or something like that, no? like burning down places and revolution in every sense of the term. But radical means something which goes to its very roots, comes from the Latin radix. Radix means root. So something to its root, to its core, to its essence is radical. So of course we can say radical violence, <laughs> extreme violence, but we can also say radical compassion, radical mercy, radical love, radical forgiveness, radical acceptance, and all that is like, yes, we want to subscribe to that. So, so radical personalism in this case. You know? So we are personalists, but radical, radicalists to the very root. What's the very root of personalism? What does it mean to be a personalist? how much of a personalist we can be, how much of a person we are, how much of a person God is. For example, in our tradition, uh, the, one of the, the faces of the absolute that we worship, and I want to clarify also this, now in our tradition we have, and I will talk about that later, we have something that is called polymorphic monotheism. Sorry if I became too technical. I will try to explain. Polymorphic monotheism is one God, unlimited forms of the same one God. In other words, God is unlimited. So being unlimited, he can have different emotional expressions, so to say, different emotional faces, but it's the same person. As we have different dispositions when we are with our, I don't know, wife, children, grandmother, we are the same person, but we are a different person in one sense to each of them, but still the same person, but different, but the same. <laughs> so the same applies, of course, in another degree to the divine. So I'm saying this because, again, we have different faces of the absolute, but they are all the same person. And it's important to keep that in mind. And I will talk about that in a second when we talk about non-duality. So one of these faces of the absolute we worship is called Krishna. And one of our teachers, Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada, he will refer to Krishna not merely as God, not merely as the personality of God, but the supreme personality of Godhead. So that's a very specified way of referring to someone. You have God, you have the personality of God, you have the supreme personality of God. It's important that we we reflect what does it mean. It's like if I say, this is Hridayat Chaitanya, and this is the supreme personality of Hridayat Chaitanya. That's not the same. This is still Hridayat Chaitanya, but I'm referring to something more specific, probably more intimate, more unique. So my point is in our tradition, when we refer to God, generally we will 
qualified the address in this way, the supreme personality of God. We are trying to relate to God in very specific terms, not in generic abstract terms. So if I want to relate to a very specified aspect of God, I have to approach that very specified form in a very specified form myself. I cannot remain like an, myself as an abstract entity trying to relate to the supreme personality of God here. <laughs> you follow my point? If he is the supreme personality, I have to develop the supreme aspect of my personality as well. So we can connect from that very like specific individuated platform. So radical personalism has to do mostly with that, with this, uh, how we can be all that we can be as individuals, because we are individuals, but how much of an individual I am. <laughs> I have a potential as an individual, how much I'm exploring that potential, how much I am, we are persons, how much I'm a person or how much sometimes I behave in impersonal terms. <laughs> we'll go through that today. I'm giving just a trailer now. Officially, we are personalists, but how many times we misrepresent personalism in very impersonal terms? So that's very delicate because on lip service level, we may say personalism kijai, <laughs> but then through our behavior, we may be going in the opposite direction. And that creates a short circuiting. That creates a dissonance, even in ourselves. <laughs> So it's important that how to say, the more we advance in our practice, hopefully the less we contradict ourselves. I mean, there is license to be a, a walking contradiction in the beginning. It's okay. There is license to, as I always like to say, there is license to wear diapers and be in kindergarten in spiritual terms also. As, as we have that license as human beings and we can just urinate ourselves being babies and, and it's charming. At that age, <laughs> no, uh, there's a license for that. Few years you can be a mess in the, in that sense, but then you have to uh, how to say surpass that mess and attain a more refined level of messiness. <laughs> we will still be messy in so many levels, but we have to attain a corresponding level of messiness to the the, the age we have, the maturity that is expected. So the same in spiritual terms, we will start. I mean, we cannot expect too much if we are just beginning without even diapers, just, no. So there is a place for lots of contradiction, lots of saying something, not doing that, as we were talking the other day. Ideally, we have to align Tanu Tavashmi. Tanu Bakmanovir. My word, my body, my words, and my mind, ideally should be all aligned with God. But in the beginning, Again, it's contradictory. I think something, I say something different from what I think, and I do something different from what I say. So gradually the idea is bringing all those in line. So gradually, gradually. So my, the, the, the spirit of, of the book I wrote and the spirit of what we are sharing today is trying to to honor properly what we are expected to represent in, in our particular tradition. If I belong to a tradition in which we say we worship a very unique, specific, personalized aspect of God, I have to reflect that personalism in every way I relate to everything, not only how I approach God, 
and how I relate to everyone else, how I relate to myself, how I relate to the world in personal terms, in personal terms. <laughs> but let's begin with impersonalism. And from there, we will go to radical personalism. Uh, for those who may, have, may, have, may not be very much accustomed to this term, impersonalism, what does it mean? Technically speaking, these currents, these traditions, sometimes it's called, in our, in, in, in the bigger umbrella of Hinduism, it's called Advaita Vedanta. Uh, and it has to do with the idea that ultimately, uh, reality, the ultimate reality is not a person. Let's put it like that. That's impersonalism. Ultimate reality is not a person. In, in, in ultimate reality, we won't be persons. There will just be one sort of homogeneous experience when there is no sense of individuality. That's not our tradition. I'm talking about one particular branch of Hinduism, which generally is uh, for, for those who are not so informed when they hear Hinduism, They'll say, oh, yeah, Advaita Vedanta. No. Whatever comes from India is something like that. Or it's impersonalism or it's uh, polytheism, something like that. I remember I, I've been having some, we talked the other day about that. I've been having some interaction with scholars and practitioners from other traditions. And they were most of them, and they were generally really well educated. By, <laughs> but when I told them, I belong to a, branch of Hinduism. I had to begin saying Hinduism to give them a point of reference. So I, I practice a branch of Hinduism which is monotheistic and actually is the, the third biggest world religion. And they couldn't believe it. They were like, what? Monotheism in India? I'm third biggest world religion? Because generally we talk about the three the three greatest great world religions, and we will go Christianity, Islam, Judaism. But actually, Vaishnavism, if we put all the Vaishnav denominations together, will be third in the list in numbers. So, so that was interesting for me to witness how from outside of our scope, most people sometimes even informed people do not even consider that there is something in Hinduism that is not impersonalism <laughs> so that shows we still have some work to do in terms of informing the world about what we are about so actually impersonalism uh, basically presents this idea no presents the idea that ultimately there is no sense of of, of personhood hmm? welcome <laughs> there is no sense of uh, but Brahma Satyam Jagan Mitya, basically, they will say, which is basically only Brahman is real, the world is false. And not only the world is false, but by extension, if only Brahman is real, this uh, abstract conception of reality, the world is not real, according to impersonalism. We are not real as individuals. Our sense of individuality is illusory, according to this line. The world is not real. The idea of God as a person is not real. And the possibility for love is not real. Because for love, as we were talking these days, you need two. You need back and forth. You need interaction. 
But if ultimately everything is one in every sense of the term, as impersonalism postulates, there's no love. There's nobody, basically. <laughs> even if you want to take it even further, technically speaking, there is no experience. Because for having an experience of something, you need an experiencer and that which is being experienced. But in Brahman, there's no such distinction. <laughs> you follow my point? That's, I don't want to go that too far because that we, that's another conversation. But anyhow, that's impersonalism in, in a nutshell. So that's not very close to our proposal. <laughs> Although there are some common points between the two traditions, as we will see. There are certain elements of Vedanta that are shared by different schools, mystic schools in India, and then there are differences of opinion. So our particular tradition is not impersonal. So one name for impersonalism is also radical non-dualism. So non-dualism to the extreme, basically. Non-dualism to the point that there's nothing except Brahman. Now, when we say we are not that, we are not impersonal, sometimes we, in our tradition, commit the mistake of thinking that we have nothing to do with non-dualism. And this is something that I like to clarify. I'm sorry if I have to be a little technical in my explanation, but that's how it works in this case. <laughs> but our tradition is a non-dual tradition also. Because when we think non-dual, we tend to think Advaita, which means non-dual. Advaita Vedanta. In personalism, no, we are not that. But we have our own way of non-dualism. That's, that's presented in the Srimad Bhagavatam in one of the most important verses. So that verse is using the word Advai. Advai means non-dual. So that verse is saying reality is Advai Gyan. That's a very interesting concept and that requires so much unpacking. To the point that Srila Jiva Goswami takes that verse, and in his attempt to unpack that verse, he has, as a result, the shots and Darvas, <laughs> which is uh, like hundreds of thousands of verses, just trying to explain what that verse is implying, which is a verse describing tattva or reality. So that verse says, Tattva is Advaigyan, reality is non dual consciousness. Gyan in this case means consciousness. And not why means non-dual. That's a very interesting definition. Reality is non-dual. Reality is consciousness, it's conscious, and it's non-dual. The ultimate reality. Of course, the verse will say it's known as Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan. So the verse is describing what the ultimate reality is. Expresses in different ways, but it's one, non-dual. Non-dual means it's self-existent. We don't have two ultimate realities. We don't have two gods. We don't have two, one absolute here, another absolute, they're competing with one another. The center of reality is only one, and everything is revolving around that. In our tradition, that's the idea. We don't have a second reality that is like threatening God. There is nothing or nobody that can threaten him. 
of course, if we go to the realm of Lila, that's another thing. You know, Krishna will be fighting with his friends. His friends will be threatening him in wrestling. But that's that's another level. <laughs> that's radical personalism. <laughs> but on, on a more metaphysical, philosophical level, non-dual reality means the absolute. There's nothing that exists independently of the center. Whether we call it Krishna, whatever name we put it, but the divine, the absolute reality is the center and everything is dependent on that. And he is not dependent on anything. He's in the center. One term that we have for that in Sanskrit is Sambandha. That's a very nice word. Sambandha. Sambandha means <clears throat> some means everything. Bandha means like Raksha Bandham, like bond, like tied. So er, Sambandha means Everything is tied around the center. In other words, Sambandha refers to the knowledge through which we realize how nothing exists independently of that center. In that sense, there is reality is non-dual. There's only one ultimate reality and everything is constellating, orbiting around it. So that's a very interesting idea. Everything is connected to the same center and therefore, everything is connected. All of us, everything has a common center, common connection. That's why the Vedas say, Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam, which means there's only one family, basically. That's what it says. Because there's only one center. So all of us are, if you will, children of that center, of that divine center. There's no more than one family. If you start to think in terms of two families, you start to be sectarian. <laughs> you start to get closer and closer to totalitarianism. <laughs> There's only one family in, in, in a deeper sense. So in the words of some of our acharyas, they will say there's one without a second. Sometimes they say that Krishna is the one without a second. There's only one. There's not another one that is trying again to to with threatening the position of the absolute, the absolute is the absolute. Mm -hmm. The Srimad Bhata not only says that in the beginning with this verse that I quoted, at the very end, the 12th chapter, uh, canto, 13th chapter, last chapter, in verse 12, almost at the end says the same thing. Bastrum Advitiyam Tanishta says, basically the main topic of the Bhagavatam is Bastrum Advitiyam, non-dual substance. In other words, the whole Bhagavatam is around non-duality. And our tradition is around the Bhagavatam. So our tradition revolves around non-duality. But, again, not the non-duality of impersonalism. For us, non-dual reality is variegated, is diverse. There's only one reality, the ultimate reality, but it has shaktis. It has potencies. We are one of them. The world is another one of them. There is Swarup Shakti as well. Shakti, sorry, means potency or energy. Sometimes the classical Vedantic example is we have the sun. <clears throat> well, today is cloudy, but the sun is there, of course. <laughs> if not, we won't see the clouds. So we have the sun, we have the bells, of the church, that's another analogy. <laughs> we have the sun, we have that's from a 
Christian church or that's from some temple here? Oh, okay, okay, interesting. <laughs> nice interfaith dialogue there. <laughs> so we have the sun and we have the rays of the sun, we have the light of the sun, we have the, or we have the fire. Let's give another more approximate. I make, I make a fire. So the fire has heat, has light, has sparks, has smoke. In one sense, all that is the fire. But at the same time, all that is not the fire. Smoke is the fire, but it doesn't have all the properties of the fire. The fire has heat and light. Smoke is not having those properties. So, so on and so forth. So in the same way, fire is kind of the source of all energy, and then comes all these other energies, light, heat, spark, smoke. So God is the energetic source, Shaktimam in Sanskrit, and there are so many unlimited energies. One of them is us, basically. We are one energy of God. We are one with God and separate at the same time. <clears throat> Everything is one with God and separate from Him at the same time. So that's a very important point because we don't want to get too much into we don't want to get too much into everything is one with God, or we don't want to get too much into everything is different from God. <laughs> so our metaphysics are called which basically means unconceivably everything is one and different from God. And again, this is achintya doesn't mean irrational, because sometimes that's I've seen sometimes devotees achintya. <laughs> Technically speaking, it's translated as inconceivable. So I sometimes saw the danger, the temptation of that when some, some, sometimes the devotees are asked a question that they don't know how to answer. They will, they will quickly press the chintya button. <laughs> no, 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 I don't know what to say. It's a chintya. No, inconceivable. No? Like stop thinking, stop asking. Ask me something that I can't reply, please. <laughs> but that's not the idea. Chintya has not to be reduced to it emergency button or something like that. No, actually, technically speaking, achintya, according to Jiva Goswami, he says, just trika gunatvam. Achintya means those things that can only be understood by revelation, that cannot be understood by the normal means through which we use to understand everything. Because we have rational capacity, we can figure out so many things without resorting to divine revelation, so to say, and we can figure out so many things and survive in this world, but when we want to penetrate into certain mysteries, into certain truths and layers of reality, we cannot do so just by our own capacity. We need the infinite to reveal itself to us. That's called avaroha uh, panta, <clears throat> or the descending process. We have the ascending process and the descending process. We are not here so much promoting, so to say, trying to build stairway to heaven, like from my own strength trying to get there, but actually making use of all my faculties and understanding the success of all my faculties, physical, psychological, emotional, mental, intellectual, the success of all of them is use them so much that they show me all their limits so I can surrender to, to the divine will so I can attain that things that cannot be attained through any of my faculties independently. But for surrendering my faculties, I first need to use them as much as I can. So they show me their limits. Now they are accompanying me till this part of the path. 
And at one point they will say, my intellect will say, that's it. This is how far I can go with you. <laughs> From now on, you have to resort to another method, to a transrational method. Reality is not irrational, but reality is not merely rational. Many things are transrational. They require another type of way of thinking. As I was saying, one and the same, one and different, sorry. That doesn't make sense. If I, for example, tell you, by giving, you receive. Probably most of you will agree. I don't know. Yeah? Not not, not in mathematical terms, in, in terms of your life experience. By giving, you receive. Generally, we'll say yes. But mathematically, logically speaking, that makes no sense. No, by giving, I, I have less. If I give you four and I have five, I, I remain with one. I'm not receiving. But in a deeper sense, I'm receiving. But that goes beyond the mere numbers and mathematics. So in the same way, if I say, going back to the sun and the sun rays, oh, this, suddenly a ray of the sun enters your room and you will say, oh, the sun entered the room. But at the same time, you will say, no, no, the sun, the sun didn't enter the room. A ray of the sun entered the room. But you say the sun entered the room. So we could say, yeah, it entered the room and it, it, it did not enter the room. Again, it sounds absurd. But you will say, if you become too strict, did it enter or did it not enter? You say both. <laughs> so that's, that's how reality operates. You cannot get too much to the, it's only one, but you cannot get too much to the, it's all different. Because if not, you become too like mon monistic, what we will call everything is one, or philosophical dualism, which basically is everything is isolated from each other. There is no coherent center. Reality is pure chaos. <laughs> there is no harmony. And, and basically the, the dangerous conclusion of that, of course, is just do whatever you want. doesn't matter. There is no inherent purpose and meaning and so on. So we don't want, of course, to conclude there. Hmm. So for that, <clears throat> in our tradition, we have this idea, everything is one and different, one and different. But the foundation of our tradition is non-dual. There's only one reality. There's not many things. There's only one God. There are not many. And I'm saying this, as I mentioned before, because in our particular tradition, we have many forms of God. You name it, Das Avatar, 10, Panchatattva, another five there, you go and whatever, the three Vishnus, Purusha Avatars, another one's there. I mean, the Bhagavatam says Asankhya, says uncountable forms of God. So that's okay, that's not a problem, but if you don't have clear, clear in your mind, you have, don't have a very clear foundation of non-duality, you can very easily become polytheistic. You can very easily think, oh, there are so many gods. No, no, there are not many gods. They are the same person in different dispositions. Follow my point? When I say, I don't know, you, you may have heard about some of these names, of course. I mean, Krishna, Mahaprabhu, Nishrimhadev, Bamandev. All of them, they are not different people. <laughs> they are the same person. The question is how much we do relate to those 
as such internally. Or how much when we talk about Nityananda and Mahaprabhu and Barahadev, we are thinking about different entities. If we are doing that, we are becoming polytheistic. And for that, we need to be better established in a non-dual foundation to understand all of them are the same person, the same unlimited person. <clears throat> so it's very important to have this foundation of non-duality. The opposite of non-duality, again, is duality or dualism, and that's the source of all fear, according to the Bhagavatam. There's a famous verse in the Srimad Bhattana which says, Bhayam dhitiya abhinibeshita syat, first line. I won't go further than that because that's another lecture. But bhayam dhitiya abhinibeshita syat. When one is absorbed in dhitiya, dhitiya is the opposite of adhitiya, so duality, when you're absorbing dual thinking, bhayam comes as a result, fear. In other, in other words, when we perceive reality uh, as devoid, uh, as devoid of a common center, anxiety starts to lurk in. I think we all have that experience. You know? Generally, when we feel anxiety, when we feel uh, existential dread, when we feel so many negative things, it's because we have lost sight of the common center. In, the, in that moment, we are we lost sight that everything is connected to a common center. Everything is in harmony. We lost sight of that, and we start to perceive reality as in dual dualistic terms, like separated, isolated. We ourselves see ourselves as isolated entities with another one isolated as well we crash with each other and so on and so forth <clears throat> so our tradition again as, as we were mentioning in the beginning is not impersonal it's personal it's non-dual but not radically non-dual it's non-dualism of a nuanced type there is varieties, there is diversity, there is unity and diversity. And that's it's ultra specified, ultra detailed, as I, as I say. You, know, you can even see a, a progression in the different traditions in India, like getting clo closer and closer to what Mahaprabhu came to give. For example, if you go to Buddhism, in terms of numbers, Buddha promoted what? He promoted in general Sunyabad, which can be com compared with the zero in terms of numerical numbers, like emptiness, zero. Like Buddha came with the idea of, okay, you are living, you are suffering. That's basically his main point. Existence is suffering. So let's stop suffering. No. Suffering has to do with attachment. Let's uproot attachment, no more suffering. But... <clears throat> In brief, his doctrine has more to do with uh, uprooting also a sense of existence and merging into some form of void. But there is no suffering, but there is no positive existence either. It's like if you tell me, Maharaj, I have a toothache. Toothache, you say? So I would like to get rid of the pain. There are two options. There may be more, but two that come to mind. One is like, okay, take out the whole tooth, or fix it. 
and it remains operative. So Buddha is take out the whole truth. There's no more suffering, but there's no more truth also. Yeah. <laughs> you follow my point. So that's his proposal in numerical terms, zero. Then after Buddha comes Shankaracharya. <clears throat> so from zero, he goes to one. And of course, before the zero, we have negative numbers as well. No? So that's the idea of Buddha. Buddha is <clears throat> you're suffering in material existence. That's like being in negative numbers. Can I ask you a glass of water, please? Thank you. <clears throat> so Buddha will say you, you are suffering miserably in illusion, in, in, in material condition. That's like being in negative numbers. And you're increasing your karmic depth, so to say. So the, the red numbers increase, negative numbers. So at least come to zero. See, zero in one sense has no value, but in comparison to negative numbers, zero is positive. <laughs> you follow my point? So if you come from minus 108 and then you get to zero, it's like, yes. <laughs> Although technically speaking, zero is zero, but it's positive by comparison with negative numbers. Okay, so Buddha establishes zero. Then Sankara came with impersonalism, monism, which means one. Everything is one. So from zero, he moved the scale to one. Okay, some progress is there. <laughs> one number. No. But it's a one that is, uh, how to say, unqualified one. It has no variety, has no no movement, no qualities. Then comes Ramanujacharya. No. So Sankaracharya system is called Advaita. Then comes Ramanuja with Vishishta Advaita. So still he's presenting Advaita, as we can see. We are not against Advaita in, in itself, but we are looking for Advaita and unity, non-dualism that has some, in this case, quality. Vishishta Advaita means kind of qualified non-dualism. <laughs> So that's a that's a form of personalism, in other words. Ramanujacharya is a personalist. So he comes with the with an, with another one. Sankaracharya broke the one, unqualified one. Ramanujacharya came with a qualified one. <laughs> then came Madhvacharya and brought the two. <laughs> so we were no, minus zero, minus four, four, zero, one, unqualified one, qualified one. Now we get to the Dwaita. Of Madhva, which is a metaphysical Dwaita. Dwaita means dualism, but it's not the, uh, a philosophical dualism, materialistic dualism, as we were talking here, but it's a dualism in a metaphysical term, trying to establish clearly there is a difference between God and the soul. I'm trying to make that clear, trying to make that clear. We are not about Sankara's Advaita. That's basically the campaign of Madhvacharya. <laughs> Shankara came with Advaita, Madhva came with Dvaita, no, to make his point clear. <laughs> it's just one letter less, but it's a big difference there. So till so far, historically, this evolution of theism came interestingly from the, again, minus four, zero, one, unqualified, one, qualified, two, metaphysical, two. And then after all this sequence comes Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he brings not only one, not only two, but he brings like 108, basically. <laughs> and, and that's what I call radical personalism. Before him, there's already personalism. Ramanujacharya, 
Madhvacharya, of course, other Vaishnav Sampradayas. But Mahaprabhu's uh, personalism is so personal, so unique, so specific, so deep. So I like to call it radical personalism. Mm -hmm. Again, as I said before, we are worshipping Krishna. He's the supreme personality of Godhead. Mm -hmm. um, and Krishna, again, for us, Krishna is a very specific, unique form of God. As we were talking the other day in the lecture, uh, the Bhagavatam, what's the term that the Bhagavatam uses for Krishna? Swayam Bhagavan. So that's a very interesting term because we have the term Bhagavan. Bhagavan is a term for God. Different forms of God are called Bhagavan. Another even great personalities also, but every form of God is called Bhagavan. But here Bhagavan says Swayam Bhagavan. So Swayam means like he's some Swayam Bhagavan means when Bhagavan wants to be himself. Swayam means himself. When God wants to be himself. The other day we gave that example. We have the idea of God, but Krishna for us means when God wants to be himself. When God remains being the universal administrator and creator, but when he wants to be who he is in the intimacy of affection and love. That's a very subtle but very crucial difference. As we said the other day, for us, Krishna is not an aspect of God, but God is an aspect of Krishna. <laughs> God as the maintainer and creator of the universe, that's one function of the divine. But we are interested about who he is in, in the intimacy of his life, what's in his heart. So <clears throat> God beyond God, if you will, God at home. That's how we call Krishna. But for us, that charming Krishna, the all-attractive, we'll call Krishna the all-attractive. The name Krishna means the all-attractive. But also we will we will be quick to say Krishna is attractive. Like once Srila Prabhupada said, someone asked, Prabhupada said, Krishna is attractive. Or someone asked him, is Krishna the all-attractive? And they were seeing a picture of Krishna by himself. Krishna said, yeah, yeah, he's attractive. <laughs> but <laughs> when he's next to Radha, Ah, then he's all attractive. Yeah. So in other words, Krishna, how to say? <laughs> Radha makes Krishna who he is. Well, yeah. <coughs> That's a very important point for us. If you take Radha out of the equation, Krishna is no longer Krishna. If you take, this is a very subtle but very crucial, important point for us as Kodias. I hope you follow my language. I like to say, God is a byproduct of the love of his devotees. In other words, you put around God a certain type of love, and he will take a particular shape to correspond with that love. So if you put Sri Radha, the Absolute will be crooked in three parts playing the flute the Sri Krishna. If you take out Radha, so to say, and bring Hanuman, Krishna won't be playing the flute. The flute will disappear, and a bow will come, arrow will come, and Sri Ramachandra will be there. Because Ramachandra is the particular form of God that perfectly reciprocates with the type of bhakti that a devotee like Hanuman will have. So you have a certain type of love, Krishna reciprocates accordingly. That's what Krishna says in the Gita. According to how you approach me, I reciprocate. <clears throat> Again, God is a person. God is not like some abstract 
entity that I will reciprocate in the same way to everyone. But everyone is not the same. Everyone is not approaching God from the same place. And God is a person. He is a person. So there will be a reciprocation accordingly. According to how I approach, there will be reciprocation. So my point is, when we speak about Krishna, there's we cannot speak about Krishna without talking about the influence of Sri Radha. The form of Krishna is poetic, poetically speaking, the form of Krishna is carved by the Prem of Sri Radha. Her Prem makes Krishna adopt that form. They even say Krishna is crooked in tree. Why? Because he's carrying the weight of the Prem of Sri Radha. So that's so weighty, so powerful that he cannot just remain stay, still. He's kind of oof. like if you put a big baggage or luggage or someone in the baggage, you you won't be probably like walking like this. No? <laughs> so so he's impacted by the strength of her love. This is this famous story mentioned in different places: Chaitanya Charitamrita, Gita, Govind, other places. Well, once Krishna was with the gopis, <clears throat> and as usual, Krishna disappears <laughs> for one particular purpose, and the gopis start to look for him in madness. And at one point, uh, Krishna says, well, I'll play with them, and he appears as Narayan. He adopts the form of Chaturbhuj, four-armed Narayan in Vaikuntha, which is a form of God more, more formal, so to say, more bureaucratic form of God, so to say. Not so playful. Not Dira Lalita Nayaka Krishna. So Narayana appears with four arms and he's overtly God. <coughs> Which is this is another important point in our tradition that in Vrindavan, that the inhabitants of Vrindavan do not relate to Krishna's God. That's another layer of uniqueness. No? That, that's a poor interesting point because, for example, if you talk with uh, someone from the Sri Sampradaya here now, they will tell you Narayan is God and Krishna is an avatar of, of Narayan. Krishna is not God. Narayan is God, so to say. Right? They will say Narayan is God. Now, if you go to Golok Vrindavan, they will say the exact same thing. Narayan is God. Krishna is not God. So somehow Sri Vaishnavas got it right. <laughs> so don't try to argue too much with them no? because it will come back home and you, in Golok you will realize yeah, I mean, <laughs> nobody there will dare to think Krishna is God even if that idea comes Nanda Maharaj very quickly will dismiss that will say something, oh yeah, yeah, of course sorry, I was in Maya thinking that Krishna was God <laughs> but the point is in that in this particular Lila Krishna adopts the form, arm form <clears throat> And the gopis, when they meet Narayan, again, they don't meet Krishna, they meet God, and they're looking for Krishna. Mm -hmm. And they meet God, and they had only one question to ask God. Imagine you, are, imagine you are walking, looking for, and God appears in front of you, like willing to fulfill whatever you request, whatever. Like Chintamani, Touchstone. So the gopis are there, God appears on the way, but they have only one question to ask God, which is, which is where is Krishna? No. No. Give me the, do, do you know the, do you have the hint where Krishna was? And Krishna was, that was, he was dressed as Narayan, witnessing the degree of love of the gods. Like, wow, they, they only care for me. The only thing they have to ask even God is, 
where I am. So he couldn't, he was like, his throat was choked. He couldn't even reply to the questions of the gopis. The gopis were, where is Krishna? Where is Krishna? <laughs> and Krishna is not I. And was like, wow, how can they love me so much? And they at one point said, <coughs> God is not replying. Let's continue looking for Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> and Krishna is not I. was like, but then came Sri Radha by herself. I need to say that the strength of her love being present in front of Krishna, Krishna couldn't keep the forearm four mm. in front of her. So two of the of her of his arms shrinked, and it, the other two remaining arms stopped wearing a shanka and Padma Lotus and Kansha took the flute and mm. he adopted the form because again, and the prince, the idea of this Lila is his form as three Banga Lalita, Krishna bending tree, is a result of the love of Sri Radha. So <clears throat> I was saying all this <clears throat> just to make this point that again, Radha is who makes Krishna who he is. And Krishna is so much impacted by Radha's love that as we know, at one point he's witnessing the degree of her love, the glory of her love. And he starts to ask, what's the glory of her love? What must she be feeling? What does she see in me? What's so special in me that drives her crazy like it does? So he wants to take her to taste her love, her, her radical love. So that's why I like to make a play of words. When I speak about radical personalism, I'm actually talking about radicas personalism. Srimati's mm -hmm. radicas personalism <laughs> makes Krishna who he is because he is a result of her love. And and the ultimate result of that is Mahaprabhu. He's the ultimate deity of radical personalism. He's the supreme personality of Godhead, wanted to understand himself better by tasting the heart of Sri Radha in the form of Sri Gaurasundar. So that's like on another level yet. That's why <coughs> Mahaprabhu is described in, in Chaitanya Chaitamta as Paratattva Simma, which means the ultimate highest limit possible of the supreme truth. So the Krishna Das Kavraj Goswami is putting Mahaprabhu above, above Krishna. I mean, he's, he's Krishna. <laughs> but he's Krishna plus. As Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead, I like to make these words. Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. Mahaprabhu is the supreme personality of Krishna. Hmm. And Mahaprabhu's lila is called the Parishista lila. Parishista means like an appendix. When you have an appendix in a book, you finish the book, but there's something else that you need to add to complete the whole thing. So Krishna Lila is the book, but there's something that in Krishna Lila that is not complete, that Krishna couldn't taste in Vrindavan. For that, he appears as Mahaprabhu, and that's the appendix that makes the Krishna Lila successful. Hmm. So anyhow, I, I'm saying all this just before concluding uh, to mention... Mahaprabhu is this, our Istadev, the deity of our school, of our Sampradaya. He's the deity of radical personalism. For me, radical personalism is another way of saying Gaudiya Vaishnavism, basically. And he's teaching by example how to be radically personal, very unique, very specific. And we are supposed to represent that properly. And before finishing, do I have a few minutes? Do we have a few minutes? Yeah? Because something that I said in the beginning was, Okay, we have such a personal tradition, very unique, very specific, very detailed. 
but sometimes we may misrepresent that and end up being impersonal in ourselves while claiming to belong to a hyper-personalized school of thought. So let me touch briefly on a few ways how we can be impersonal while being devotees, while being personalists, and of course, hopefully, how we can try to <laughs> heal that. No? So I generally like to think of we can be impersonal in many ways, but four of them will be <coughs> in how we relate to ourselves, in how we relate to others, in how we relate to this world, and in how we relate to God himself. So again, we are persons, we are individuals, each of us, individual beings, we will be so for eternity. But in many ways, we as practitioners, as sadhakas, may be impersonal with ourselves by not, <clears throat> among other things, I mean, you can also we can do brainstorming and you can share with me your own ideas, how you can be impersonal with you. I would say, first of all, by not treating yourself as a person by not paying attention to your personal needs. I mean, we are individuals. We have emotions, for example. Sometimes in the name of practicing a spiritual life, we dismiss all of our emotions or some of them. I've seen that. Sometimes in the name of being transcendental, we end up rejecting. Because we may think, oh, no, feeling this is not so high. Feeling this is not divine. Probably, but it doesn't mean that you, you, you have to cancel all your expressions as a human, for example. We are human beings, and we don't want to compromise our humanity in, this, in, in, the, in our pursuit for spirituality. That's very important. We want to preserve humanity because our goal is Naralila. Naralila in our tradition is a reality which will be fully human and fully divine. If you pay attention to the Leela of Krishna Mahaprabhu, it's human, perfectly human, perfectly divine. But there's humanity there. So if we don't preserve our humanity here, how will expect to enter there, to go there? And I've seen that many times. In the name of being transcendental, we end up becoming inhuman. <clears throat> because we think transcendental means nothing affects me, I don't feel anything. And we would get closer to a cyborg than to a <laughs> spiritual, sensitive human person. Mm -hmm. So those are some ways in which we can be impersonal with ourselves mm -hmm. and, and, and not try to engage our individual nature in the service of Krishna. That's very important. Each of us have a, an acquired nature. We have a particular psychology, personality, and that's to be... Uh, Engage in the service of God. That's not to be denied. And each one will have a certain affinity and inclination. It's okay. Bhagavatam is saying, you have to offer to Krishna what Krishna likes the most. And he then gives a second option. And what you like the most. Or what you like the most. Also. So there is place for that. Krishna also wants to know what you like the most. What's your particular taste? Engage that and connect that with me, Krishna is saying, <clears throat> so anyhow that's that's i'm very very brief this particular section we could do a separate class but i'm just touching quickly since i would like to give some minutes if there are questions so we can be personal with us in that way denying repressing 
canceling our humanity, not allowing ourselves to feel things that we need to feel, even if they are not the highest, most ecstatic emotions, <laughs> we may need to feel those things now to eventually reach deeper places. Like, I don't know, someone may betray you in your life. I, I happen to have gone through that. And I remember after I went through that, I felt I want to immediately forgive that person and pray for that person and be able. And I realized, no, no, no. First, I have to be angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and first, I have to suffer like mad. And first, I have to go through a certain emotions that are coming naturally. You know? And they're not bad necessarily. That's the thing. That's the thing. Sometimes we feel certain emotions are bad. And actually, as I write in my book, there are not such a thing as bad emotions. There are wrong, bad things we do with emotions. But emotions are. are. <laughs> you follow? Are. Emotions are not bad or good or bad. I mean, anger is not bad. You can have anger and you choose how to express anger in a correct or wrong way. You can be resentful forever. And that's a toxic way of expressing anger. <laughs> but but your anger can take you to establish healthy boundaries and express certain things in, that that will be constructive and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> one of the secondary rasas in eternity will be Rodra rasa, <clears throat> which is anger. <laughs> <clears throat> so anyhow, some thoughts on how we can be impersonal with ourselves. Then comes by extension how we can be impersonal with other people. Sometimes we do not relate to each other in very personal terms. No, sometimes we don't treat each other as individuals. We sometimes treat each other as, again, numbers or categories or objects. No, many times if we don't go deep into our humanity, we end up objectifying each other, no? like treating each other like objects. Because again, if we don't preserve our humanity, we tend toward <clears throat> becoming machine-like. I was talking about this the other day with, with a Franciscan nun who is a scientist also, she. And we were talking about how technology is advancing so much nowadays and will continue doing so, of course. And with AI and other developments, you see that, okay, technology starts to replicate human emotionality on some level. Of course, personally, I'm not of the idea that at some point technology will create consciousness out of itself. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying on some level, technology starts to resemble more and more human-like behavior on some level with its limits. So the point is, if we as humans <laughs> are not too human, the level of humanity, so-called humanity, that that technology will offer will be more than enough. And there will be a blurred line where we are no longer able to make a distinction between what's actual humanity that can only be produced by actual humans and what's the product of technology. You follow my point? And at one point, you no longer know what's the difference. Or at one point, the humanity of technology will feel more human that our own humanity because we are not too human generally. So it's so important more than ever nowadays to preserve our humanity. So whatever other replicas of humanity that are trying to be replicated can never 
be the same. So we know clearly what's the difference between one thing and the other. And for that, we have to express ourselves humanly in how we treat each other. Sometimes we don't treat each other very humanly or very personally, again, like an individual. I always make this, give this example to the devotees. Sometimes devotees, and when I say devotees, I refer to practitioners, our tradition, and by this I'm not implying that there are not devotees in other traditions, just a colloquial expression locally. And sometimes when they meet you, that happens a lot to me, I imagine with you also, they may meet you someone for the first time, and the first question is, maybe first question will be, what's your name? Maybe second question, maybe, uh, where are you from? But then third question, for sure, <laughs> if it's not the first, will be, who's your guru? <laughs> and of course, implying that question, there is a long list of labelings. No, depending who is your guru means which is your mission, which is your institutional affiliation. Mm. And depending on that, I will know if I can continue talking to you or not. <laughs> Something like that. In general, I'm not saying everyone is like that, of course. But there's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's impersonal, yeah. basically. Because if I ask you, again, I'm talking with, to Brihad Mridanga. Brihad Mridanga, who is your guru? I'm basically, and I'm like, like filtering, no. I'm basically telling him, I don't care who you are. I only care for your particular affiliation and I will label you and put you in a certain box according mm -hmm. to the affiliation you have. Mm -hmm. Of course, it, it will be important eventually for me to is your guru as he is a, a crucial part of your life. My, my point is, I want to know you as a person, as who you are. Mm -hmm. It's not enough for me to know what's your affiliation to fully define you. Do you follow my point? Mm -hmm. So that's impersonal. <laughs> not only impersonal, that's invasive. Uh, in one sense, according to Gaudiya etiquette, you, you cannot ask someone who is your guru immediately. It's mm -hmm. like if I ask, if I meet, uh, I don't know, mm -hmm. Tribanga after 15 seconds and asking, what's your social security number? <laughs> huh? Or, 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 or where was your wife born? And you're like, it's, it's weird. I mean, I just meeting you for two minutes. Wait, I mean, why are you asking on that level? No? To how, my guru's name, all that kind of, that's something confidential. That's something mm -hmm. secret. Sanatana Goswami said, Gura Bo, uh, sorry, Gopayet Guru Ratmana. Gopayet Istadevatan, Gopayet Chaniyamantran, Gopayet Nijamalikam. Hide your Istadev, hide your guru, hide your Malika. Hide your mantra. Hide. Of course, hide. Do not take that literally, no? because your guru comes to your house and you put him in a room and kidnap him. <laughs> Follow his Sanatana Goswami Gurudev. He's screaming from the closet. Let me go. <laughs> be careful. Don't be a literalist with Chester. So go hide means keep it confidential. Keep it secret. Keep it like <clears throat> low profile. Don't take this deep realities and make like a public event of that, a show. Mm -hmm. It's something to be like kept in the innermost chamber of your heart. So anyhow, some ways in which sometimes we may relate to each other impersonally, you know, not caring for, for for where we are, not taking the necessary time to, to, to be empathic. I mean, sometimes we are so quick, and I'm not free from that. I mean, I'm telling all the things in Krishna, I'm sure. 
he's hearing me speaking so much and taking, okay, you're talking all those things. Let's see how much you walk your talk. So, I mean, and then will come the tests <laughs> to make me fail in those. So one of those is we judge each other so easily. You know, we, we are so quick to, to conclude about other people without taking the necessary time to enter into their shoes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's everywhere going on. And we are not free from that. But that's a way of not being personal with each other. That's impersonalism, even if we are dressed as radical, radical personalists. No? If someone is going through something, I need to take time and energy to enter into his, her shoes and really be empathic. That takes time and energy. And pro probably nobody, not many are willing to do that exercise. But it's easy to label and judge and conclude, and especially with one keyboard and one screen here, especially if we don't have to say that's the person in front of you. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many things people had said about me online and how little people have said about me in front of me. Uh, basically, 0% in front of me, 99.9% online, <laughs> which shows, yeah, that, that's not healthy. That's impersonalism, technically speaking. Although we may not say all is Brahman, <laughs> we are promoting a form of that. <clears throat> How can we be impersonal just to conclude with this world? Well, to begin with, I will say by not treating this world as a person. In our tradition will say this is Bhumi Devi. It's a personalized entity. So if we re refer to this in, as a thing, well, that's again objectifying a person. And also, and, and once you see a person as a thing, well, what follows from that is you, you won't treat that very nicely, basically. <laughs> if I start to see you as things instead of person, you can imagine how I will treat you. So extend the same idea to the planet, to this world. It's a person we see it as a thing. And no wonder we have the ecological crisis and disaster we have nowadays. And sometimes, even unconsciously, we may even be fostering this idea by developing a, a world, how, how sometimes it's called world-denying religions. You know? we, we, our tradition is not a world-denying religion. We are not against this world. But sometimes, and I'm being generous by saying sometimes, <laughs> I've seen followers of our tradition, and I'm criticizing, as you can see, my tradition a lot, constructively, not the essence of my tradition, but how the tradition can be misrepresented. In, in one sense, my book is an attempt of constructive criticism to the present condition of, of, of our community and the things we need to improve. Not the essence of the tradition that is transcendental, but how that is being conceived and represented. And one of these misrepresentations, in my opinion, is that generally we have a, a, a world-denying orientation many times, in, speaking in terms of this world is bad, we have to leave this world as soon as possible, this is a prison, we are being chastised here. And of course, there are expressions like this here and there, because I, I can imagine some of you may be quick to tell me, but Maharaj, Krishna in the Gita says, Dukalayama Sashvatam. Mm -hmm. huh? This world is an abode of misery and it's temporary. That's not so flattering toward Bhumi Devi. But it's in the Gita. <laughs> so I'm not denying that. But then you have someone like Prabhupada Nanda Saraswati saying, Vishwam Purnam Sukhayate. Mm -hmm. 
the whole universe is an abode of joy. So you have to do something with those two statements. Abode of misery, dukalayam, vishmapurna sukhayate, dukha and sukha. So is one right, is one incorrect? No. Rupa Goswami says when you find two apparent contradictions in the scriptures, you cannot just cherry pick the one that is more comfortable for you and, and deny the other. You have to harmonize it, to integrate it, and understand the context, what has been said before, after, what's the bigger context. That's how scripture is to be addressed, not just copy paste out of context and absolutize two words without paying attention to everything else that has been said. That's that's potentially dangerous. You can establish a dictatorship in the name of Shastra. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes the scripture will speak badly about this world, but not about the world in itself, but it will speak badly about our exploitative orientation toward the world. So since we are a public danger, <laughs> in that sense, the scripture will speak strongly about that. Like the example I give is like a, a boy wants to do mischief and put his fingers into the plug and the mother knows he wants to do mischief and he will be killed by that. And there's not too much time to explain to him the dynamics of electricity and plug. So she tells him, there's a monster in the plug. The plug is bad. Don't put your finger there. It's not that the plug is bad. It's that the kid is, is doing nonsense, basically. <laughs> So that's the language. But when the kid is mature and understand, there's no need to employ that threatening language, so to say. So in the same way, scriptures will use different types of language in different sections, addressing different types of people, because I hope you understand not every person that reads the scripture is on the same level. Not every person is on the same level. So in that way, it's important that we understand this world is not bad. This wor world is an energy, as we say before, of God. And that energy is engaged in the service of God. Maya Shakti. Maya Shakti is serving Bhagavan fully. Probably more than what we are serving Bhagavan. So it's a better servant than us. That's what Vishwanath Chakvartakur says in one commentary in the Bhagavatam. Material world is serving God in a way better way than where we are serving God. So we should venerate that energy. <laughs> And Krishna comes to this planet Earth over and over again to execute his lila here, Boma Lila. When he finishes one lila on this planet Earth, he goes to another. So he's perpetually on Earth. So how bad can be planet Earth? Krishna is perpetually coming there to execute his lila. So it's all about the orientation we have. No? Brahma Samhita says, God is present in every atom of creation. Every atom. Paramatma is not only in every heart, it's in every atom. Try just to, for a minute to think about that. Impossible. God is in every atom. Of course, I don't want you to, yeah. <laughs> but at least it's good that we make our thinking faculties collapse. <laughs> <laughs> and at least we know that such a thing exists. Wow, there is an embassy of God in every atom. <laughs> the presence of the divine is oozing. Oozing from every atom. Of course, I don't see, I'm not seeing that, but that, that's what is going on. And the scriptures say that. The, the highest devotee, he's seen the presence of God everywhere. The lowest devotee is seeing the presence of God only in one place, in the altar. 
which is okay. We have to begin somewhere. At least you see God somewhere. <laughs> Before that, maybe we don't see him anywhere. So let's begin in the altar. So Kanishta, Bhakta will see God in the altar. Mm. Kanishta, Kanishta probably will see God only in his altar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In other altars, I don't know, but in my altar. Yeah. Sorry? Kanishta means like a neophyte, a beginner practitioner, which has a very weak faith and is more fanatical and immature, but it's glorious, it's practicing. So it has a more narrowed mind. Okay, I'm seeing God in the altar. My. I grow a little bit from Kanishta Kanishta to Kanishta Madhyam to intermediate neophyte. Okay, I'm seeing my God in my altar, in Kridai's altar, and okay, Abraham Redanga's altar, and Ananta Goranga's altar, a few more altars, Krishna's appearing, <laughs> and so on. Then you get to the intermediate practitioner, and he or she is seeing the presence of God not only in everyone's altar, but in everyone's heart. So that what you understand, everyone's heart is an altar. It was not only about the altar. The altar was not the altar only. The heart is an altar. And then he realizes, um, if it's not, it's supposed to become. So I'm practicing bhakti, so my heart becomes an altar. Because God's residing there. And the Uttam Adhikari, the topmost devotee, he will only he will see Krishna not only in the altar, not only in every living entity, but everywhere, even in every atom. Maybe not necessarily at every moment he's seeing Krishna appearing from every atom, but the realization is that before that we may have a theoretical knowledge. That's a fact, but eventually that becomes a, a vision. So imagine if you perceive the presence of God everywhere. How will you relate to everything? Everything is sacred. There's nothing profane anymore. The only profanity was in our own vision. As they say, beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder. We could say profanity lies in the eye of the beholder also. When you reach the, the platform, like someone like Prahlad Maharaj, no? that's very literal. Prahlad Maharaj was with Hiranyakashipu. Hiranyakashipu represents dualistic vision. I'm God, he will say, uh, and there's no God apart from me. And he's asking Prahlad, where's your God? And it's very interesting because Hiranyakashipu doesn't see God at all. So he's asking, where is God? Nowhere, not even in the altar. And Prahlad Maharaj, he's the topmost devotee who sees God everywhere. So Hiranyakashipu asks, where is God? And Prahlad replies, where is he not? I'm seeing him everywhere. <laughs> he's, he's having difficulty not seeing God. <laughs> and that's literally, and eventually, Viranikashi was asking, so is even he, even he is in this pillar? And Prahlad say, I told you, he's everywhere. Even in that pillar, even in that pillar. And the pillar was this size, and a string of this from this size came from that pillar, confirming the idea. Potentially, God is in every atom. Potentially, Nishrinha Dev is in every atom. <clears throat> if you have Prahlad's vision and you are in a situation of necessity like he was, <laughs> be ready for the whole apartment to crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in principle, that, that's a fact. We may not have that vision, but we know that's how reality should be looked upon in an ideal way.
And, and, and that's what we should do. We, are, we do not have the vision of the most realized people, but we are to conduct ourselves in practice. Burning mind was the vision of the most realized people. Mm. You follow my point? Someone who has full love for God sees reality in a certain way. Then I know that's how reality should be ideally to be contemplated. Mm. So although I cannot imitate that, I will practice striving for that vision. So again, I, I was saying all that in the context of how we can be personal with this world, remember? And one last thing, if you give me one minute, is how we can be impersonal with God himself, which may sound contradictory because we may say, what, did, what are you talking about, Maharaj? We are devotees, we are worshiping Krishna, the supreme personality of Godhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but in practice, many times, we may not relate to Krishna as a person. At many times we may behave in our daily life as if God does not exist. That's called functional atheism. I mean, I'm not saying I'm atheist, but I conduct myself as such. <laughs> you follow my point? I forget there is a supreme controller. I forget that Krishna is my great well-wisher. He's loving me unconditionally. I forget all those things and I behave as if all those things do not exist. Without being aware that I'm forgetting that, of course. <laughs> not with bad intention. But sometimes we have this idea. Or, or sometimes we are impersonal with Krishna by trying to limit who he Krishna is, who Krishna is for us. For example, all of us, each of us in our respective tradition. I know there are many Christians present here today also. So this is semi-interfaith dialogue somehow. Semi in the sense that I'm not officially talking about that, but we are sharing common topics. And all of us are trying to connect with God, serve God, love God. Now, each of us have an idea of God. Each of us, like it or not, we will have certain, if I ask you who God is for you, who Krishna is for you, whatever name, you have certain notions. But the point is, Krishna is, God is not only that. You follow? God is not only your idea about him. <laughs> so be careful not to limit God to your ideas about God. Your ideas may be correct. I'm not saying they're wrong. But he, he may be that plus <laughs> so much more. And he's trying to reveal himself more and more in your life. But if we are very attached to this is who Krishna is. You are not allowing him to be all that he can be. And that's impersonalism. You are not allowing the supreme personality to be all the personality that he can be in your life. And you're just being reductionistic. Krishna, just be this. <laughs> Krishna, just remain being my idea about you. And maybe even my idea is flawed. <laughs> so I should be open to be corrected in that. That's also the spirit of the real seeker of God. I'm willing to be corrected if my ideas about you are wrong, please, or are partial. May be correct, but may not be the, the all, everything. So I'm willing so you can further introduce yourself to me. I'm open to develop my relationship with you. If we are not, not keeping that open door forever, <laughs> that's a form of impersonalism. That's a form of limiting the unlimited. I mean, the limited remains unlimited. We are being limiting ourselves, actually.
You follow my point? Yeah. Hmm? Or what about chanting? Sometimes we chant or we pray and we forget that Krishna is there. <laughs> That's impersonalism. No? Teresa de Avila will say that. No, The main problem with prayer is that we pray as if God does not exist. We forget that he exists. No, we pray. Teresa de Avila. No? We pray, but as if God does not exist. We are not including him into the picture. So, of course, it will be such a torture, so hard to pray. It's like us, us alone against the world. Well, God is fully present there, but we are not allowing that presence to move. So, again, a few examples for us just to be aware that there is the possibility. I'm not saying we are indulging in that. Hopefully not. But there is the potential of being impersonal in so many ways. While officially we are representing a radically personal tradition. So we can properly honor and represent all that radical personalism Gaudiya Vaishnavism wants to offer to us, to the world. <clears throat> so anyhow, some thoughts, sorry for the extension. It's an elaborate topic. You were raising your hand an hour ago, sorry. <laughs> What's your name? Murari Mohini. Murari Mohini. Yes, you have a question? Okay, we'll spend some minutes if, if there are questions. Ideally, maybe related to what we were sharing throughout the class. So, yeah. Can you please tell us more about Achintya, this inconceivable characteristic of Krishna? Um, is that maybe like a fourth dimension? Like um, Gorgovina Maharaj? There's a fourth dimension you cannot even imagine. Mm -hmm. When we see like him changing shades and all these things. Mm. Is that this achintia? Like, mm. Can you tell us more about it? Okay. So we can, of course, we not have eyes to go up this uh, the to understand it, but I would like to get inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your question. So, <clears throat> so a few words, a few more words about achintia. Remember, achintia <coughs> in Sanskrit means inconceivable uh, so of course that's in itself a challenge let's say more words about something that is inconceivable we will try <laughs> um, so we were mentioning before inconceivable doesn't mean something that cannot be understood in any way <clears throat> but something that belongs to a separate department in, in other words there are certain things in life that can be understood in a standard way, through rational uh, processes and so on. But what we want to understand, love, God, these like big ideas, it's not enough to just use my rational faculties and I will figure out Krishna. It can, you can ne never even come to the conclusion of Krishna just by thinking. You need someone else telling you about that. <laughs> You need revelation. No? So achintya means, according to Jiva Goswami in, this, in his Sarva Sambhadini commentary in the Paramatma Sandarva, achintya means those things that can only be understood by revelation, by Shastra. In other words, something remains achintya until and unless one resorts to Shastra. So when one resorts to revelation, you come to know about things 
that you couldn't know otherwise. So that, that's one thing to begin with. Because again, if we don't go, if we don't wouldn't have Shastra, again, nobody I think will come. Oh, I haven't I came with an idea called Krishna, Golok Vrindavan, and, and, and Bhakti Rasa. I figured that out today in the morning, just like squeezing my brain a while. No, it doesn't come like that. So revelation is required. The, the infinite plane in the words of Srila Siddhar Maharaj, the infinite will make itself available to the finite and we can understand we are finite and krishna is infinite so what's our hope being finite to capture the infinite it seems like hopeless but the infinite in his infinite capacity can reveal himself to the finite that's one of the mm -hmm. attributes of being infinite he can do whatever he likes <laughs> so that's our hope to get a glimpse of what's happening on that plane so well, you were talking about the fourth dimension. Sometimes the Sanskrit term for that is adokshaya. Uh, and also the, the Vedas and the Upanishads will use the expression turya, turyatita. No? For example, Gopal Tapa and Upanishad will say turyatita Gopal. Turyatita means the fourth, just referring to what you are talking about. Now you have the first three, the 3D, three dimension that we all know here. And then say, but there is a fourth. And sometimes some chairs will speak about the fifth, even. Not like Adokshay. Adokshay is the name of God, which means he who is beyond mind and senses. He who cannot be captured by the usual methods through which we understand everything. So that's why we need to recalibrate our epistemology, the way we used to understand everything. So and at the same time, one last thing regarding Achintya is this healthy, and I write a whole chapter in my book about that called Divine Ignorance, about mm -hmm. the how healthy is also to remain in a state of uncertainty on some level. And by this, what I mean, I mean that sometimes we become certainty junkies <laughs> in the spiritual pursuit. Sometimes we understand faith as a quest for certainty. And faith is, faith is not that. Faith means the trust, trusting how, how to say, different ways to describe faith. Of course, that's a whole different conversation. But faith has to do with dealing with the unknown, what's mysterious, what's secret, what's beyond us, and trusting that even when we don't fully understand it. I mean, we cannot fully understand Krishna. We cannot fully understand God. But we have to reach a place that we fully trust him. Even if, It's not that I need to understand everything about you before I can trust you. That's not how faith works. <laughs> I'm putting faith in some, something sublime. Mm -hmm. I'm putting trust in something sublime. Yeah. Yeah. So we will have this. Yeah this unflinching trust and confidence because we already had some experience. It's not all either blind faith. There is some experience that is validating my trust, but it's not that I need to corroborate every single detail always. So I trust you. Yeah. So there is a health, there's important to keep a healthy dose of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's good to say, I don't know. 
No, it's not I need to know everything. We will never know everything. <laughs> so it's healthy to say, I don't know. You no, know, like we were saying the other day, when Brahma thought he knew Krishna, he thought he knew Krishna, and then he tried to do some mischief by kidnapping his friends and the cops. And Krishna did his mischief in return. <laughs> and Brahma's forehead were like, shoof, bimohan, completely bewildered. And then at the end, he said, there's people who say, I know Krishna. I say those things. I say I know Krishna a few minutes ago. I won't say that again ever. <laughs> no, I don't know who Krishna is. And what I know in comparison to what I don't know, hmm, and he remains offering prayers. No? So, so it's important that we keep some healthy openness to mystery. Krishna is a mystery. Love is a mystery. In the Bhagavatam Bhakti describes Rahasya, confidential. Krishna in the, in the Gita describes Bhakti as Raja Guhyam, the king of secrets. Mm -hmm. So all this is speak, spoken in terms of confidentiality, secrecy. So we should be careful not trying to plunder the mystery. No? <laughs> trying to understand all mystery. Mystery also is, has to be kept as mystery, preserved as such. Mm -hmm. Some words about that. I hope that helps regarding Achintya. And again, if we cannot understand certain things that we may need to understand, we have to also have this implicit faith and trust. Krishna will reveal whatever I need to understand whenever he considers. I mean, I have to do my effort. I don't have to be lazy. But if beyond my personal capacity, something else lies beyond my reach, that's up to him. I cannot just force him to anything. That's not the mood. So I have to wait and, and, and trust. Be patient. Mm -hmm. Patient is not an, a cheap virtue. No, I'll be patient. <laughs> patient means wait while trusting. No, patient is not I'm waiting, but I, I, I'm getting neurotic. <laughs> no? The, while I'm waiting, I'm de deepening my trust, my confidence in whatever has to reveal itself. Patience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Maharaj, thank you for the wonderful lecture. Um, I want to ask um, how, in general, like in Vaishnava communities, uh, you see sometimes the maybe the influence of this uh, impersonal mentality <clears throat> each other, like uh, how we treat each other, because uh, we know Krishna is very personal with the, with the trees, with the Jamuna River, with the, like that. And so how we can uh, magnify this personalist instead of being impersonal with, in, in community, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> in communities? And how, second question, how uh, we can be more personal I mean, as you mentioned, we can be in person with Krishna. So how uh, improve that? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, how to be more personal with each other? I would say, hmm, as I mentioned before, we have to take take time to know each other. Take again, that takes time. <laughs> That's an investment of our life. <laughs> time and energy, you know, like share with other person and get to know each other and and get to know each other deeply. You know, that's what Rupa Goswami says when he says, 
no, like reveal your mind. Uh, it's not only come to the other person with problems. It's whatever it has to be, but in, conf in confidence, like learn to be vulnerable to each other, open, naked, mm -hmm. transparent. L learn to gain, to, I mean, we have to create that space to begin with. Mm -hmm. Because if we, <clears throat> if we are not able to create a space, safe space, people won't feel safe to be vulnerable. No? First, you need to create a safe space of trust and confidence with each other, of care, of concern. And again, that's not a show. That demands time, time and energy and sacrifice, dedication, uh, responsibility, you know, commitment to, to each other. I mean, to, to be more personal to each other means I, I'm taking more responsibility in the relationship. It's not just a casual thing like, how are you doing? Fine, okay, I'm being personal. Thank you, goodbye. <laughs> no? But it's willing to, to sacrifice and commit to each other in whatever the, that relationship will, will require, will demand. Uh, and, and generally a relationship will demand that we change. And that's the last thing we want, generally. <laughs> no? Change, I mean, spiritual life is all about change. But generally, the thing that we avoid the most is change, even when we are practicing spiritual. <laughs> so when we relate to each other, we risk, quote-unquote risk, being changed. Because you start to open to each other, and one person starts to influence and affect the other, and you start to be transformed by the other person. When, it start to, when intimacy starts to be there, you start to affect each other. You start to become something else, so to say. Not as something bad, but if you are too attached to not being transformed and changed, we may really get terrified, close and shoo. so we have to work on that. We have to, to begin with, to talk about the things, to create awareness that we need to be more personal. Maybe that's the beginning of everything. Just get together and sit and say, hey, guys, we need to be more personal. We are supposed to be personless, but we are pretty impersonal in how we treat each other. No, how how much do we know the struggles of each other? I mean, that's a very healthy exercise that I personally do with some close friends. Try to do it daily, although sometimes due to my troubles, it's difficult. But it's just as simple as it is, but as powerful as it is. Just getting together, even of course, if you are in person, online, whatever the case, or miss online sometimes. Although in person is the idea, just you sit in a circle and try to share how you're doing today, how you're feeling today, how was your day, how you are struggling today. <laughs> but trying to be as honest as you can. And the other people, they have to hear, being present, hear attentively, not judge, and fully accept and receive whatever you have to offer. It sounds easy, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> in practice. When you have practice, it may be easier, but in the beginning you realize, wow, it's so difficult for me to open, to be fully transparent. I'm so afraid of being judged. I'm so afraid of being rejected. I'm so afraid of not belonging. Uh, whatever. So many things may happen. I'm, I'm generally speaking, of course, I'm not saying that all of you are in that situation. So we need training and practicing all the things, as simple as they may sound. And that 
helps us to be more personal, to be more caring, to be more concerned about not only how many rounds did you chant it today. Again, that's, in one sense, that's superficial because that's a number. If I tell you 16 every day, you, what do you will conclude? Oh, no, he's doing perfectly because he told me 16 every time I asked him for the last 10 years. <laughs> but the number is there, but where is my mind? Where is my heart? Where is going on inside of me? You have to ask about that, actually. <laughs> Not how many rounds did you chant, but how are your rounds? How are you while chanting your round? How is your heart? How are, how are you doing? That takes time again, that, and, and that can be messy entering into those places. Mm -hmm. No, we have to take off all these masks that sometimes we put for the Sunday feast, so to say. <laughs> no, in Sunday feast, everything is nice. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Kirtan, Prashad, each one goes, and everything sounds like wow, this is perfect idea. And then at home, each one is taking pills, suicide, beating their wife, having porn, watching porn clandestinely, or who knows what. No. <laughs> I'm not going here to ask for a public confession, so relax, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is we, we need to be honest. I'm not saying like reveal your mind in Instagram so 5,000 people know about that, but we have to, to be in contact with people, at least one person that we can feel he or she knows everything about me. Of course, that person is Krishna to begin with. <laughs> but hopefully there is someone else. You know? So we can really be ourselves as we are and also feel that oh, I'm being accepted as I am. I'm being loved as I am. I can belong as I am. That's very necessary. So we don't develop this idea that I need to, we will talk about that in another lecture, belonging versus fitting in. So we don't need to fit in. We need to belong. Mm -hmm. Fit in means I change who I am so I can fit in. Doesn't work. Belonging means I have to remain being who I am to belong. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to fit in in Christian consciousness. I want to belong. <laughs> I've noticed when, like, when I when I play in front of, of a big audience and, and uh, also maybe very new people, uh, uh, then uh, it's a very different feeling than with, when I'm doing some bhajans with some friends in a small group. So the question is, we've seen with even with Lord Chaitanya for many years. They would not. They would not go out on on Sankirtan. They would not go out in public. And they were very strict that there has to be some sajati sangha, and only them. And for years, they would uh, yes have this Sankirtan, this togetherness, and uh, growing together. And then after that, they would go out on the. Of course, Lord Chaitanya doesn't need this. He doesn't have this development mm -hmm. to do. But I think this is a very strong statement because he practically did this for years. So isn't it that we should also try to have these small groups and uh, also like sharing confidentially and doing bhajans confidentially and, and for some time, no new people can <laughs> because 
it, I have to, like you speaking now, different to us than when I speak with you personally, just mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So similarly, the Bajans are, are different. Mm. So what do you think about this? Yeah, yeah, thank you for the point. Yeah, I basically agree the importance of, as you mentioned, to clarify the term Swajati as Sangha, that's a term that Rupa Goswami uses, which means like-minded association. When he describes Sadhu Sangha, he qualifies that with three words, Swajatiya, Snigda, and Swatavara. No? So he says Sadhu Sangha has to be with like-minded people, same species, tribe, <laughs> people who is affectionate and who is more advanced. Some of them may not be more advanced, maybe equals, but also the importance of having also a contact with more advanced people. So you mentioned this point of like-minded and yeah, that's so important uh, when it gets too massive, too general, it gets abstract. You know, as you mentioned, if I'm giving a lecture, this is a relatively sustainable crowd for me in the sense that I keep I can keep, I'm trying, keeping eye contact with all of you and somehow keep some personal interaction. But if, if I'm talking to 500 people, that's lost. <laughs> I mean, I'm not criticizing those lectures, but it's another category, so to say. I cannot get into certain things more specifically personal because I cannot keep the, the feedback going on here i'm talking and i'm looking at your faces to see if i should i continue talking all this or not <laughs> you may forget but i'm seeing your faces here <laughs> you may not say a word but your face speaks a thousand words so so i'm trying to also adjust my narrative according to how you are responding because we are having a dialogue in one way although you are not talking you are speaking with your face but if i'm talking to 1000 i lost track of that so i, I keep it more I will have to give, deliver a more generic presentation, which is okay. But yeah, in order for keeping that more intimate and personal, I personally feel that we need intimate groups or we can keep it very... And sometimes intimate group may be one, one more person. No? <clears throat> like the, the Bible, it's the same. No? When two or three gather in my name, there I am. No, So... He's not saying when 300, 400, yeah. 10, 12, yeah. then two, no, one more apart from you. <laughs> That's more than enough. No, in our tradition, we say this famous verse. Uh, how would you say? Joginam Hrida Yesu, Tatratishtami Baikunte, Joginam Hrida Yesu, Tatritami, Jadbayantita Mangatya. Krishna saying to Narada, I'm not in Baikuntha, I'm not in the heart of the yogi. I'm there when two or more of my devotees get together to sing about me. It's basically our own version of that line of the Bible. So it's it's very important to keep it in. And, and in that intimacy, of course, certain things will be disclosed that won't be disclosed publicly. No, mm -hmm. it, it will be unsensitive to me, for example, now in a gathering like this, I'm getting to know some of you for the first time today or maximum for the second time. <laughs> and I will be insensitive to me trying to force, okay, let's fully open ourselves and be totally transparent. It may be too soon because we don't know each other. It, we need to, again, create some safe space, confidentiality, 
So vulnerability can come, intimacy, more confidential sharing. So I agree that it's important to keep those intimate circles. And from there, naturally, some power will come, some churning will come, some overflowing will come, and eventually that will overflow and may sprinkle and touch other people as well. So, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, one is yes, that one idea was coming in my mind when you were speaking about faith, mm. and you also mentioned later Teresa de Avila. And I like too much the definition what he do he do about faith. You know? mm -hmm. He was saying faith is just uh, try to do a relationship with uh, the own one. I'm sure he'd love me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I too much was coming. But my question is, it's not in the same way, but I think too much sometimes with the names of the Lord. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, all the names, what I understood is, is yes, the uh, one, uh, one mm, some attribution of the uh, what he has in the name, no? The Krishna, the Eternal Attractive, Joshua, God Save, and this like that. But my question was always why in the Old uh, Testament never speak about the name of the Lord? Because Joshua, uh, Jehovah, uh, yes, means uh, what I was, I, I, I am, and I will mm -hmm. be, no? Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody tell me that in the in the, your scriptures there is one name of Krishna cannot be mentioned because it's not possible put in in mm. another another name. No, mm -hmm. so this so put this together for me is like uh, have uh, have uh, I find the one connection. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is is like did you know something about that? Well. I will say that, <clears throat> of course, the, the idea, if you go to the Old Testament and, and the name Yahweh, which is written with the letters without the vocals, also Jewish tradition, which follow, of course, the Old Testament will say that the name of God is so sacred that it cannot be pronounced. So that, that's another, I mean, we, we will say the same thing, but in a different way, so sacred that we are all day pronouncing it. <laughs> but it's a different way of making the same point. Um, there's one name of Krishna in, in, in the scripture that is Anam. Anam mm. means he who has no name. <laughs> Which, of course, the idea there is, it's not that he has no name, it's that he has no material name. So that's also an important part to understand from the scriptures. There are sections in the scripture that say God has no form, God has no name, God has no qualities. But then you go to another section that say, that show and describe in detail the names, qualities, and forms. So you have, again, to integrate both of them, reconciliate, reconcile, sorry. So the reconciliation is, yeah, he has no name in material terms. His name is not mundane. His form is not temporary. His name, form, attributes are not as we used to think of them. And, and you think maybe this Anna once I, I tell to him father because... Sorry again? 
So in Jesus tell us uh, say to the to the to the, to the Lord Father, no? Father is mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. quality what he wants. And then my mind says actually he used the word Abba. Abba. And Abba, Abba means daddy. Abba, daddy. That's interesting. <laughs> it's not father, it's daddy. It, so it, it's there is more like intimacy. Mm. No? There's uh, on some level there's it's not the same. You say father and daddy. There is an it's another layer of of intimacy there. Just a detail. Uh-huh. So this is Yes, uh, right. Sí, que a veces pienso que a ver la relación de este Dios que no quiere ser mencionado, ¿no? uh -huh. que como que si es este que tú dices de como has dicho que se dice que no no tiene no, Anam, Anam. Anam, mm. es este que quiere que, que nos relacionamos mm. con él. Yeah, I would I, I, I would I wouldn't say that God doesn't want his name to be mentioned. It's just that uh, and, and again, there's a, a whole conversation, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, and why one is presented. That's it's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that God doesn't want his name to be mentioned or sung. It's just the point is being made how sacred that is and how it's still surrounded by mystery, as we were talking before. So we we always keep that idea in mind and we don't take that like, like cheaply, like oh, yeah, I know God's name, and I know which, and I sing it. It's still mystery in its own mm -hmm. way, and it's and it's super sacred, mm -hmm. and that's for us also a big challenge because in our tradition, we won't say mm -hmm. don't chant His name because it's too sacred. Sacred, we are chanting all day, but we have to keep in mind how sacred that is, mm -hmm. because we can also get accustomed to repeated and chanting and in ordinary way while it, the name remains being extraordinary. So that's that's a big challenge for us in our tradition. <laughs> the name is the most sacred of the most sacred, but it's one of the things we do the most, and it's always the same, so to say name, so it can become very easily mechanical repetition, and that's not the idea. So we have to be very careful how we approach, every time we approach the practice, the chanting, the name of God, the most sacred, the most sacred. You had a question an hour ago, sorry. <clears throat> um, I'm thinking about a way that you know, we can be personal, I think it's like with ourselves and the world, and it's something that I think is quite common, because you know, we get taught that there's many uh, statements in scriptures that discourage pursuing happiness in this world, mm -hmm. and it's common to see that <clears throat> devotees misunderstand these statements, and then they are averse to sense enjoyment, which comes as a natural consequence of executing your duties, which is actually incorrect. And then, and I think that also disturbs the spiritual life quite a bit. So can you maybe say something about that? <laughs> yeah, that's totally accurate, no? So you, you heard his point, right? So I will repeat also for the ones, we are doing live streaming here, so for the ones connected that didn't hear. So sometimes, <clears throat> we may read some sections in the scripture which seem to discourage happiness in this world. Uh, so sometimes we may misread those sections by denying or canceling or repressing or whatever. <laughs> whatever happiness that may come to our lives as a byproduct of us performing our dharma or our duties properly. Mm -hmm. 
and that can be a way of being impersonal, basically, right? So he wanted to me to share a few more words, although he made very clear exposition of that. And yeah, I will say again what the scriptures seem to again remember scriptures say say different things at different times to different people. It's not so easy to understand the scriptures, any scripture, not only our scripture, any scripture is it's not just <clears throat> I remember reading talking with Richard Rohr, he's a friend of mine, he's a Franciscan monk, an author. And he will say, before you put the Bible in the hand of someone, first you have to train that person to think philosophically and to think theologically, because if they don't have a training in that, mm -hmm. you put in them a book full of, of the word of God. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the maturity to deal with that and to understand the statements and the context, you can become a public danger. Because again, you have a book full of absolutes and ultimate ideas and conclusive thoughts about God and everything. If you don't have the proper maturity to filter that, you can be, justify anything, basically. So Bhagavad Gita is not an exception to the rule. No? As we were saying the other day, Oppenheimer, when he saw the atomic bomb exploding, he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. Well, he was reminded of the 11th chapter of the Gita. But Krishna is not promoting atomic bombs in, in the Gita. But you can read the text like that. So, so there are sections in the scripture which seem to uh, down to, how to say, yeah, to downplay or to even condemn happiness in this world. But actually what, what is being condemned is uh, basically... And not even, I will say, condemn all the strong language may be used to create some mm. sh shock treatment, mm. <laughs> uh, selfishness and exploitation uh, in the name of happiness, no? in the pursuit of happiness. But the happiness that comes, I mean, Krishna says in the Gita that the byproduct of sattva guna, which could be tied to performing your duties properly, the byproduct of sattva is happiness. And, and it's not that you have to struggle against that, no? Like, like you are trying to be a good father. I don't know. Let's give a simple example. You make a very nice effort to be a good father, a good mother. And the result that comes, it may not be that the result, but it can come. The result will be that your child will be very nice and educated. It may not happen that also. You have to be ready to be detached. <laughs> but let's say that you perform your duty very nicely, and the result is you have a very beautiful child eventually. So that brings you joy. <laughs> so it, it makes nonsense, no sense that, oh, no, 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 that bring, brings me so many, so much joy. I have to deny all that because I'm being happy in this world or something like that. No? It's, it's totally forced. It's totally superficial. Actually, we will accept that in a humbling way, you know, humbled by that, like, okay, this is the blessing of God by me trying to fulfill his, his will in this world. This is coming not to, to, to distract me from my duty, but to further encourage me to perform that. And I will honor that gift uh, in that spirit. No, it's not that by, by being happy. I mean, sense enjoyment is not a bad word. Mm -hmm. That's a point also. We have stigmatized the term, mm. many terms, many terms. Mm. Many, we have to restructure our whole glossary mm. many times. There are words, I personally, there are words I say that many times. 
maybe this number eight, 108. There are, there are terms that we use that are very inaccurate. We were talking also with Hridayi Chaitanya about that the other day. Uh, but this particular term, sense gratification or sense enjoyment, I mean, just by breathing, you are having sense enjoyment. That's a form of sense enjoyment. You're in such a, such a selfish exploiter, Maharaj, by breathing in that way. <laughs> no. Oh, the sun is coming. It's hide from the sun because you will be sense enjoying the sun. You will be exploiting the resources of nature. Relax. No, I mean, you are getting paranoid. <laughs> you follow my point. I mean, there is place for for enjoyment. I mean, when when a scripture may speak strongly against that, it's speaking about an extreme way of that, which is like brutal, cruel, selfish, not considering other people, this type of things that we know what they do they create, but like a healthy, normal, sustainable, reasonable dose of that. I mean, sleeping, maybe sense enjoyment. Sleeping is tamaguna, technically speaking. But we need tamaguna not to go crazy. If you don't sleep, you're crazy. So tamaguna is healthy. You follow me? There is a place for tamaguna being healthy. But generally, we don't think like that. That's my point. We think everything that is tamaguna, which means mode of ignorance or inertia, needs to be eliminated from my life. So that means you have to stop sleeping then. Try it. <laughs> but not near me. I don't want to be near you when you're not sleeping. So again, we have to be more, yeah, more more balanced with that. So, so yeah, I, I I consider that generally we need to be more more relaxed. Not relaxed in the terms of we are like indulging excessively in. <laughs> I mean, you have to be honest with yourself and see how much this is really distracting me. But sometimes we we end up being more distracted by repressing and denying and no 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 uh, and becoming a denying machine basically. Neti neti. Prabhupada say if you emphasize too much neti neti, you end up in Brahman. Because those who want to go there are thinking those neti neti means not this, not this, this solution, this solution, this solution, discarding layers till you find the only real thing, Brahman. But if you ask the devotee thing too much in terms of this is Maya, this is Maya, this is Maya, this is Maya, I don't know where you are going. No? So, so yeah, it's important that, in my personal opinion, that of course, again, I understand the beginning we may need to think a little bit in terms like that, but at some point we have to be more, to develop a more organic, holistic, user friendly <laughs> relationship with everything, with our bodies. I'm not talking about sexuality today. That's a separate lecture. But that's a, a big topic. I, I write in my book about that also. <clears throat> the way that's a st stigmatized in our society also. Mm -hmm. To a point that it becomes toxic and healthy and creates way more distraction and disturbance <laughs> in the name of remaining paka, pure, transcendental, whatever. No? Another conversation. But... Yeah, at least we need to bring to the table the topics and talk about them. <laughs> at least don't feel fear of talking about anything. No, we have we need to talk. So anyhow, some thoughts about that.
we have sorry we have time Hridaya. i'm I, I mean yeah i'll say one more question and then we can go for your time okay except if someone has really like a really important question you give them more who, who won't be able to sleep tonight if they don't present their question mm. <laughs> are you already presented one <laughs> let's be fair with the audience we'll be having other meetings and okay ¿Cómo se relaciona? Lo material con lo inmaterial. Con lo inmaterial. Hmm. ¿Te puedo preguntar a qué te refieres más puntualmente con cómo se relaciona? Sí, o sea, cómo, cómo interactúa, cómo puede interactuar lo material con lo inmaterial. Uh -huh. Ok. Básicamente porque tengo problemas de entender lo inmaterial. Uh -huh. Ok. En el momento que la energía pues, es materia, uh -huh. transformada, uh -huh. ¿cómo es la energía no material? No, 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 no no mm. So he's asking translation. We're talking in Spanish. <laughs> What's the difference, or how how is the interaction between matter and spirit, basically matter and antimatter, if we want to call it. material and immaterial? What's the relationship between the two? So, ¿entiendes mi inglés? Okay. Very nice. Okay. <laughs> I'll make it maybe brief because that requires a long conversation, and that's great. We may have that conversation another day, longer, but I'll, I'll say something. So, uh, <clears throat> because this is the last question. The, 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 the only, this is your, que your question and dinner. So, there, that's a big pressure for me. Mm -hmm. Now, to reply to the last question, I'm between, it's me, your question, and dinner. So I know that if I extend too much, uh, that can end up in catastrophe. So, <laughs> but a few words. So yeah, matter is energy, which is a very good point that you made because in the past, even before things like quantum physics or something, matter will be seen more only in terms of like an object, some inert, inert thing. But now we are realizing it's not that inert. <laughs> no, there's there's life there. It's an energy. We call it an energy. I mean, in our tradition, matter is technically is Maya Shakti. Shakti means energy. But we will be talking about different energies also. No, mm -hmm. we could we could say everything is energy, but there are different energies. And also there is the energetic source, which we'll say is God, Krishna. <sighs> So matter is one energy. Uh, it's not exactly the same as spirits, as, as consciousness. We will say consciousness. In one sense, matter, it's complex topic. So, of course, it's, it's totally understandable that we cannot figure out here. Because as I say before, in every atom, there is God's presence. At the same time, we won't say that. So try to see the distinction here. Because we are saying, okay, we are souls, individual souls. Me, you, we are individual entities. In, the, in, in, in this body, it's my soul, your soul. So we will say in this class, there is, not, there is no soul. But at the same time, in every atom, there is God. <laughs> so you follow, because we may say, Okay, in this glass, there is no soul, so this is inert matter. So if I say, yeah, but it, you must say that in every atom there was God. 
I mean, I'm not saying that's in the scriptures. So it's like, okay, so then how inert that is. Maybe there is not a soul like, like us in a body, but at the same time, I cannot speak of this as totally inert. No? So it's a different type of <laughs> energy, a different type of movement. So, so we could say that, yeah, this is a glass. In every atom of the glass, the presence of God is because one nature, one aspect of God is he's omnipresent. You may have heard this. God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. These three omnis. So if God is omnipresent, if you play out the implications of that means there is no place God there is not. If something, someone is omnipresent, he cannot not be somewhere. <laughs> so his presence is in every atom, but it doesn't mean that there is an individual soul like us in matter. So in one sense, I could say that's uh, that's one difference. And since, I mean, that's not a small difference. <laughs> there is not an individual soul. So therefore, I cannot expect to reciprocate, to have, I don't know, I cannot develop a loving relationship with this glass. No? God is present even in the glass in, in certain way, but not in a way that I, I, I'm, it's facilitating relationship. There's, there are different levels of presence of God as well. There are different forms of God. They say like that. I have to become technical. Sorry with all this. <laughs> for, for this omnipresent form of God, that's called Paramatma. We may have heard about that. Paramatma is an aspect of God present everywhere. But Bhagavan is the as form of God that you can relate to personally. So in this glass, there is Paramatma, so to say. There's not Bhagavan. So... I cannot relate to the, I cannot establish a love relationship with the glass. I can establish a relationship with there is another entity. So, yeah, the qualities of the, of the, the Atma, of the soul is Satchidananda. I make it brief. So we exist eternally. And again, we could say this does not exist eternally. But at the same time, you could say, this does exist eternally, but change forms. <laughs> this does not stop existing. So that's interesting also. But it, it does, I mean, it does not exist in the same form, although we exist in the same form. Not in terms of body, because we are not the body, but the Atma is always the same. The Atma is not changing as the glass is changing. But the Atma exists eternally, and this glass changes force, but that the glass's energy as material energies does not stop existing either. Do you follow my point? Yeah. I can burn something, it becomes ashes, whatever it becomes. Krishna says in the Gita, whatever exists will never stop existing. Whatever does not exist will never exist. Whatever exists will never stop existing. In some cases, it will just change forms. So that's one another difference, how matter and consciousness exist eternally. Both exist, both are real, but and eternally exist, but one is constantly sh shifting forms and the Atma is not. In constitution, we shift bodies, but that's not the Atma. So Satchit, Chit means consciousness. We are conscious by nature, the Atma, the soul is conscious, 
And while the glass, again, is hosting the presence of God in certain form, the glass in itself is not conscious because it's not an individual separate entity. So that's another difference. And therefore, if we are not, if the glass doesn't have an individual living entity conscious, there is not the possibility of ananda for the glass of experiencing joy. We can ex we have potential to experience joy as as consciousness as being immaterial in terms of what you were asking. Immaterial, I'm, I'm referring to us as immaterial, as an example of immaterial, and as material like using the glass in this case. So a glass is not experiencing ananda because there is nobody there to experience the ananda. I mean, it's there is God's presence everywhere, but the glass as a separate entity person, no, it's not a person, it's just material energy taking different shapes. That's what I can say now, seeing that dinner is coming. So. And my one had a question. Can we address it later? No rush? Yeah? Okay. So thank you so much to all of you for your patience. More than two hours. So sorry for torturing you for two hours here. <laughs> and thank you for the invitation, Hridaya Chaitanya, here. And for everyone to, to for being with me, sharing your, your friendship, your association. I look forward to meeting you very soon. Sri Sachinandan Gaur Hari Ki Jai, Sri Sri Gaur Nityananda Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Prabhu Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Primananda Hari Gaur, Vanchakal Patarubhisha, Kripasindu Bheva, Chapati Tanampavane, if you wish, and if you Anantakoti Vaishnava Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Hari Hari Gaur.